to the Not A Cast podcast, the one true chapter-by-chapter chapter podcast going through A Song of Ice and Fire one chapter week. I am one of your hosts, Jeff, better known as Brendan Beefish. And I'm your other host, Emmett, better known as Poor Quentin. And welcome to our 49th episode of the Not A Cast entitled Doom. It's Doom, man. An analysis of a Game of Thrones edited 14 in which Ned Stark faces down a smirking blonde asshole sitting his stolen throne just like at the end of Robert's Rebellion. But this time, <sighs> dad's going to go down. He's going to go down, isn't he, Emmett? It's so painful, but it's true. Uh, painful is the correct word to talk about this chapter. Yes, yes. Ned Stark is going down here. As many of you guys have talked about, you've been looking forward to us talking about this. And we are here at one of the most pivotal chapters in all of A Song of Ice and Fire. But... As always, this episode is brought to you by our small council, our Hand of the King, Wolfman Zach, Grand Maester Timothy W., Lord Commander of the Kingsguard, Mark N., Lord Travis, Master of Ships and Warden of the Waves, Sir Keith J., Master of Whisperers, Lord Philip the Merciful, Master of Laws, Jancy O., Lady Commander of the Night's Watch, Archmaester June, Healer of the Lesser Poxes, Ragged Michael, Warden of the North, Nelson the Hammer, Prince of Dragonstone, and our newest member of the small council, Lord Jean, Master of Coin. Thank you, counselors, very much, and welcome, Lord Jean. Thank you, as always, counselors. Welcome to Lord Jean, and hope we don't see any shady little finger-style practices from you in the future, good sir. You know, it's 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 quite uh, quite ironic that he is joining as Master of Coin in this chapter, where the Master of Coin does so much goddamn shit in this chapter, man. True. Very suspicious. Gonna have to keep my eye on this one. Yeah, same here. Anyways, our, our spoiler warning as we talk about in all episodes, we'll be talking potentially about all published books. That is the five novels, the three Duncan Egg novellas, histories, interviews, the Winds of Winter sample chapters, as well as Game of Thrones, a TV show. Anything and everything. So our next episode, which is on Arya 4, Serial Pharrell's Last Stand, one of my favorite chapters in the series, oh, yeah. is going to be a little break from the format. It's going to be the first episode of the regular podcast that we do live over on our YouTube channel. We're going to be doing the live stream on Aria 4 on February 4th. That's Monday, February 4th mm-hmm. at 8.30 p.m. Eastern Time. Obviously, we'll be posting reminders as the link as we get closer to that date, but we're very excited to, to try this out. It's part of the rewards for having reached our $3,000 a month marker on Patreon. So thanks so much to all our patrons and everyone who listens, and we hope to see you there. Yeah, it's going to be a lot of fun. We'll be taking some of your questions before we get started, and maybe we'll have a small section towards the end of the podcast that... We'll take some of your ideas about the chapters. So if you guys have some interesting ideas, please don't bring stupid, ugly ideas into our podcast, our live stream, because it will be very sad and very upset, especially since it's my birthday. True, true. Jeff is turning, I'm going to, what, 12, 13? How old are you, buddy? 11. 11. He's getting so big. Where does the time go? <laughs> we raised him. I know. I've been, I've, I've gone from being... 10 years old last year to 11 years old this year. It's going to be a very exciting year. I can't wait to see what birthday cake my mom's going to make me. I, it's going to be great. It's going to be so much fun being 11 years old. A delicious fray cake for you, good sir. Oh, boy. That sounds tasty. Mm-hmm. And in addition, if you guys have not already listened to it, our Dance of the Dragons, our penultimate episode on it, which is all about the Regency of Aegon Third, is out for you guys right now for all of our $5 and above patrons. And also, if you guys are listening as well and you're one of our patrons, we'll be also answering your questions in our kind of, call it Stump the Chumps Part 3, in which we'll be answering all of your fire and blood related questions. We have 21, 22-ish questions that we have on our docket, so that'll be coming your way. So it'll be out for all of our $5 above patrons on Thursday and a few days before that for all of our small counselors and our Kingsguard patrons. Absolutely. So before we get to our question this week, we got a note from Sir the Jim that was promised, a Kingsguard knight who said, I've noticed that you guys use the term sex worker to refer to people the books use more pejorative pejorative words for. In that spirit, I was wondering if I could get you to consider the terms birth parents or birth mother slash father in place of real parents, which are greatly preferred in the adoption community. (laughs) As the adoptive parent of a child, I can tell you that I believe myself to be the real father, not the sperm donor who seems to have left his birth mother long before he was born, if he was ever with her at all. (laughs) And I I can assure you that my son considers my wife his real mother, not the woman who left him at a hospital when he was born. Thanks for your consideration. Thank you, Sir the Jim, for your note, and that that's a really great point, I think, and yeah. definitely one I think we should honor going forward. It's it's easy to toss off a term like real parents and passing without thinking through the implications, but that is insulting to adoptive parents who put in the hard work and the love of raising a child and are absolutely as real as any other form of parent. So I think we, we are going to be 
taking notice of that from on and using the term birth parents and birth mother and father. If we slip up again, please, please call us out as such. Yeah, absolutely. We're not perfect. And it, it does help to kind of expand our worldview to have folks who have real world experience kind of bringing that here. And uh, sir, the gym that was promised, it's awesome that you're an adoptive parent. I know we were talking a little bit on Patreon a little bit about it, but uh, hats off to you. And we would, we're going to attempt as best as we can to honor uh, what, what you asked us and to keep going forward with that. But of course, as always, as Emmett said, if you see us kind of slipping up, please, please, please call us out. And that really goes beyond just simply the idea of birth parents or birth mother and father. If you see us slipping up in other ways, please call us out. I mean, we got a couple interesting comments on on Facebook and other places um, that I think we'll talk about at some point in the future, especially about Taisha. We we got a couple comments about that, that we are, we'll address when we get, becomes a little bit more appropriate to talk about it, but we do appreciate all the feedback, negative, positive in between the kind of, and, you know, we especially appreciate the stuff like where we're sort of the gym reached out to us and was like, Hey, you know, let us know, letting us know what's, um, what's the preferred term for those who are adoptive parents. So Sir Jim, you're awesome. You and your wife are awesome. We, uh, we appreciate your patronage and we, but more than that, we appreciate you as a person for being awesome and being a, being adoptive parent. Yes, indeed. It's never easy to talk about things like that or to make that kind of correction. Never easy, but always, always appreciated. Yes. So thank you indeed, Sir the Jim. Moving on to our question for the week. It comes from Snark Knight, a sworn sword who asks your graces. What is one non-tinfoil hat theory you'd like to send to the wall? Ooh, what a good question that is. Now, obviously, this is going to vary on what you consider to be a yeah. tinfoil hat theory, but we'll do our best to stay within those confines. Jeff, what do you think? What would be your candidate here? That, you know, you, you, you set up correctly because, like, it's really hard to find a theory that's not tinfoil or to kind of de- determine what is tinfoil and what not tinfoil. So what I did is I ended up going back to a theory poll that I posted back like 2015. So... One of the questions that I asked there was Tywin Lannister poisoned by Oberyn Martell? And it was literally 50-50 or, or 51-49% yes, no in, in favor of, of that. So I would say that is sort of non-tinfoil, the idea that Oberyn Martell poisoned Tywin Lannister, but I'm not in favor of the theory. And the reason why I'm not in favor of the theory is because – it goes in opposition to what Doran Martell tells the Sand Snakes in A Dance with Dragons, where he has them all gathered around with Ariel Hota standing as, as the watcher there. And he's like, well, o- Oberyn was the viper, but I was the grass. We were working in concert together. The idea was not to simply kill Tywin Lannister. The idea was to bring everything down around him before finally killing Tywin Lannister. Oberyn Martell going out of his way to kill Tywin Lannister before his regime is crumbled around him does seem to be in significant contrast and conflict with what Doran Martell is saying. Now, I will say that there's a possibility that Oberyn Martell went rogue on Doran, but it doesn't seem like that. I don't get the sense from Doran Martell that he's thinking that Oberyn was just way, way going rogue on, on Lord Tywin. So to me, it feels like that if Oberyn poisoned him, it would be outside of what Doran Martell had told him. And in that light, I think that Oberyn Martell did not poison Tywin Lannister. I think instead that Tywin Lannister had died and all of the dead smelling side of him came as a result of him being dead. I mean, that's that's the, the motif that I see in here is that he's dead. His legacy is rotting around him. And it does kind of undercut that narrative theme that Martin is integrating into Tywin Lannister in the first couple of Cersei and Jamie chapters from A Feast for Crows, where he is basically sh- being shown to all of Westeros that his legacy is being shown to all of Westeros as being rotted, as stinking, as smelling mm-hmm. awful, because that is entirely what Tywin Lannister's legacy ultimately is. It is not a legacy that's going to last, as we've talked about numerous times before this. And I think that Ober Martell poisoning Tywin undercuts that thematic impulse that Martin has integrated into Tywin Lannister's story. And I think it's important that it Oprah not poison him both for plot reasons and for thematic and for thematic reasons. So that's the one tinfoil theory I think that I would like to send to the wall. So that's that's my take on the one non-tinfoil hat theory that I like to send to the wall. What about you, Evan? Nicely said, sir. I think my choice would be the theory that Sweet Robin is Littlefinger's son instead of John Aaron. Hmm. I don't consider this to be a tinfoil hat theory because Martin does go out of his way to emphasize how much Harry the Air looks like a young John Aaron in right. Sansa's release, the Winds of Winter chapter, and he looks nothing like Sweet Robin, and that does kind of remind me of the Joffrey versus Robert's Bastards plot yeah. in terms of the Bastards looking like Robert, but 
Joffrey not looking like him and that being a clue that he's not really his son. And of course, we know that Littlefinger and Lysa were stopping at some point in King's Landing. So I'm, I don't think it's out of the realm of possibility. I don't think it fits the Littlefinger-Lysa dynamic we see when we actually see them together at the end of A Storm of Swords in the Vale via Sansa's POV. Because there I get the sense that Littlefinger has been very deliberately dangling the possibility of right. a child in front of Lysa this whole time. And that it's something she hasn't gotten yet. And I feel like she would be... I feel like she would feel more secure about Littlefinger and her relationship with him than she does if she had that child already. If right. the child was already secure with her. So while I see some basis for the theory, I think it makes more sense for, for Lysa's character and how Littlefinger's been manipulating her for Littlefinger to have promised her that child later, especially given the dialogue that they exchange on that topic and A Storm of Swords. Yeah, and plus you have in A Feast for Crows where Littlefinger is lying, but he tells a Lord Nestor Royce that Lysa had become pregnant by him and Merlin was so jealous of Lysa being pregnant by him that he ended up murdering Lysa. So it's it, that works there as well. But I also think the other point too is like, how are they going to actually accomplish this in King's Landing were they all just sneaking off someplace? And if they were sneaking off someplace, how did Vars not catch wind of it? You know, it's one of those things that I do kind of think is, it's an interesting theory, much like the Oberyn poisoning Tywin, but I, it's one I agree with you that I don't necessarily back. I think it's it's better for Sweet Robin to be actually John Aaron's biological son. Certainly. And while while the medical basis for, for what Martin does with childbirth and childbirth in the wake of uh, abortion is not always the most medically accurate thing in the world, it does <laughs> right. fit... The pattern in the story where because Lysa's womb was messed with by her father uh, against her will and that that horrible action back during Robert's Rebellion that Martin is blind. This led to not only her miscarriages, but also uh, Sweet Robin's medical condition. Again, I I don't think that's necessarily the most medically accurate conception of things. Maybe (laughs) it is, but regardless, that's, that's how it plays out in the series. So I do think we are meant to understand that. That's why Sweet Robin doesn't look like the strong, robust son of Lord John Aaron, not because he's actually Littlefinger's son. Yep, absolutely agree. So, uh, thank you, Snark Knight, for the question, and um, I'm, I'm curious to see what uh, what new tinfoil theories and non tinfoil <laughs> theories emerge in the wake of both season eight and the Winds of Winter, as they come as they come out near simultaneously, no doubt. Oh, of course, next week for the Winds of Winter, and then just a few weeks after that for season eight. Good times. Uh, yeah, any any time now. But, of course, we are actually still back in 1996 and the publication of A Game of Thrones. And, man, we are at the chapter which fundamentally alters all of A Song of Ice and Fire that throws the entire series, the entire narrative into significant curveball territory, man. Like, this is this chapter and, and Ned's execution chapter are very similar to The Red Wedding in that it just totally upends the narrative. So, oh, boy, here we go. Absolutely. I mean, the next Ned chapter, his last Ned chapter is actually my favorite of his, but yeah. it feels it feels very much like a postscript or an epilogue to his story. This is the climax. This is what we've really all been building to this whole book. Yes, absolutely. So here is the synopsis for A Game of Thrones, Eddard 14. The hoofbeats of Stranger wake a formerly passed out Ned Stark from a short, exhausted sleep at a study. Stranger? Yeah, Stranger. Sandra Clegane's horse, and of course, the aspect of the seven, the faith of the seven, that is, which represents death. Thank you. Mm -hmm. I'll be here all week, here, forever, man. I'm going to be here forever. (laughs) Ah, So Ned Stark looks out his window and sees Lannister men-at-arms riding about the castle practice yard, riding down scarecrow soldiers, practicing its swordplay. It's almost as if they're training and preparing for something. Almost, right? Ned wonders if this exhibition is for his benefit. Maybe they're here to try to scare him, but Ned Stark is no coward. Beyond that, he knows that Cersei is a goddamn fool. He'd given her chance after chance to get the fuck out of King's Landing, but no, she's still here. A little while later, a very optimistic and not at all foreshadowing gray cloudy sky hangs above Ned, Arya, Sansa, and Septim Ordain as they eat breakfast. Well, most of them are eating breakfast. Sansa isn't touching her food, but Arya is chowing down next to Ned. She asks Ned if she can conduct one final dance lesson with Cyril Pharrell. Oh man, I'm sorry, starting to tear up. And Ned agrees, but it needs to be short. Everyone must be ready to board a ship by noon. But wait, Sansa says, if Arya can have a dancing lesson, why won't Ned let her say for what a Chaffrey? Mordain puts in that she'll accompany Sansa to see the prince because she's the worst. More on that next week in our live cast. But no, you ain't going to see Joffrey. It's not wise. Sorry about that. Sansa tears up and asks why. And Mordain, again, because she's the worst, blithely tells Sansa that her father knows best or some shit. It's 
She's the worst, man. Uh, Sansa, understandably, look at me being so fair. I'm saying that she's understandably feeling <laughs> things, gets upset mm-hmm. and pushes away from the table, crying and heading off to her room. One more Dane says she'll go follow. Ned very, 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 very sadly says, nah, just let her go. He'll explain everything when they're back at when they're back at Winterfell. An hour later, Grand Maester Pycelle arrives at the Tower of the Hand with news. My lord, King Robert is gone. The gods give him rest. Robert Baratheon, first of his name, King of the Andals, the Roynar, the first man, and all the rest of the titles that he didn't really care about, is gone. And with that, we have our second major character death in A Game of Thrones. Let's give Robert kind of a bad king, kind of a bad friend to Ned, definitely a piece of shit to Cersei and his sons and daughter, yet he's still compelling as a character. Just a brief moment of silence. All right. No jokes here. I am genuinely sad. And I was writing this at midnight this past Sunday. So it was Saturday into Sunday. So I was kind of sad when I was when I was rereading this to, to write the synopsis. Ned tells Pycelle that Robert wouldn't want rest. He prays that the gods give him laughter, love, and the joy of righteous battle. Even as Ned says these touching words, he feels empty inside. He wanted to weep, but he couldn't. He was the hand of the king. Go on, do your duty. You can hear Stannis urging from Dragonstone. Hell yeah. Ned summons the small council to his solar at the Tower of the Hand, but Pycelle, Lancer Tony is all like, well, let's just hold on for a minute and let things kind of rest until tomorrow morning when Cersei can be totally ready for you. But no, the small council must be convened now. Pycelle sends his servants off to, let's just say, get the small council and also probably tell Cersei that Ned is moving. Let's be real. Sir Barristan Selmy is the first to arrive, interesting given his age, and he's confused because he's Barristan, but also because his place should be at Joffrey's side. Ned tells Barristan that his place is here. Littlefinger shows up next, all smiling and shit, wearing the same clothes he was wearing when he was playing Spin the Cat's Ball Dagger the night prior. The little task you set me is accomplished, Littlefinger tells Ned like a motherfucker. Varys arrives next, all washed up and pretending, actually, being sad about Robert's death. He asks Ned if they should begin. No, 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 we can't begin yet. We gotta wait for that terrorist Renly first. Ah, yes, Varys says. About Renly. You see, he kind of, well, he gone. Varys tells Ned that Renly the Coward went deuces on King's Landing and took Sir Loras Tyrell and an additional 50 men with him, heading south, perhaps towards Storm's End, perhaps towards Highgarden. Ned doesn't like the sound of that, and really... Why would he like the sound of that? But whatever. Renly can go play Terrace in the South. Ned's got work to do. He draws the letter out from his pocket. The king called me to his side last night and commanded me to record his final words. Lord Renly and Grand Maester Pycelle stood witness as Robert sealed the letter to be opened by the council after his death. He asks Barristan to read the letter and Sir Grandfather reads that Ned Stark is protector of the realm and he's to rule until his heir comes of age. Ned gets all clever and thinks, and as it happens, he is of age. Guys, he's talking about Stannis. Let's just get that Yay. right right now. Yes. But he's not about to say as much in front of Vara's Pycelle Barristan. They don't know the truth about Cersei's children. Um, well, I guess one out of three ain't bad, Ned, because Vara's and probably Pycelle know. Barristan doesn't because, well, again, he's Barristan and he's often confused. Eddard is obviously uncomfortable at the deceit that he's performing, but he knows he has to play this game until he establishes himself as regent, until Stannis shows up at King's Landing with all his power. He asks the council to confirm him as Lord Protector of the Realm, wondering about what each of the councillors was thinking, but then Fat Tom opens the door. Pardon my lords, the King Steward insists, and then in walks the Royal Steward, announcing that Joffrey has demanded all the small council to come to the throne room. Okay. So I've read these books, God knows how many times now, and I've read this chapter in preparation for this podcast five, six times before writing this, and I am tense as a goddamn bowstring where we're getting here. And I know what happens next, man. It's just like, that's the real power of of A Song of Ice and Fire Mm -hmm. and of George as a writer. So absolutely. Moving on. Well, Ned knew that Cersei would strike soon. So he says, yeah, sure, they'll go, but they're not going alone. Ned tells Fat Tom to get an armed escort to accompany them. Littlefinger offers Ned his arm to help Ned down the stairs, which is, yeah, it's great foundation for what's about to occur. At the base of the Tower of the Hand, an escort of eight of Ned's men with gray cloaks snapping in the wind await. Love that line, snapping in the wind. Fortunately, there's no Lannister red cloaks about, but Ned is reassured to see all the gold cloaks about as they cross the castle courtyard, manning the walls, standing in guard, and mm, man, especially when we get to the next RA chapter, you... 
<sighs> Such a gut punch. At the door of the throne room, Sir Janice Lint, a frog-faced motherfucker who Jon Snow will be headed to dance with dragons, meets Ned. He's all armored up. Janice's men push open the door and in the men go. All hail his grace, Joffrey of Houses Baratheon and Lannister, the first of his name, King of Andals, and the Roinar and the first men, Lord of the Seven Kingdoms and Protector of the Realm, the royal steward sings out. Ned and his entourage make the long walk to the boy king high atop the Iron Throne. All the while, Littlefinger continues offering Ned his arm, probably thinking about how it's the fucking tits that he's helping carry Ned to his doom. As they continue on, Ned remembers the first time he was in the throne room, at the near end of Robert's Rebellion. He had been on horseback, sword in hand, as Jamie Lannister sat at the Iron Throne with the dragon skull staring down at them. He sure hoped Joffrey would step aside as easily as Jamie did. Whew. Five of the seven knights of the Kingsguard stand in a crescent defense formation around the Iron Throne in full armor from head to toe. Cersei, Tommen, and Marcella stand behind Sir Boris and Sir Marin Tran. And the Queen Mother is looking super fucking regal today. A green gown trimmed with pale mirish lace drapes across her body, while a gold ring with an emerald the size of a pigeon's egg rounds her finger. And atop her head, a tiara. All the while, Joff sits high atop the throne with Sandra Clegane at the base of the throne and 20 red cloaks behind the throne. But not to fear, 100 gold cloaks are arrayed around the exterior of the throne room, holding eight-foot-long spears. You gotta give George this, he can really block a scene well. Oh yeah. When Ned's entourage finally stop, his leg is a blaze of pain. And of course, he's still holding onto Littlefinger for support. Joffrey rises from the throne. I command the council to make all necessary arrangements for my coronation. I wish to be crowned within the fortnight. Today, I shall accept oaths of fealty from my loyal counselors. Not just no, but fuck no, Ned implies as he orders Varys to hand Cersei Robert's letter. Cersei reads the words, scoffing at Ned's appointed role as protector of the realm. Is this meant to be your shield, my lord? A piece of paper? She then proceeds to rip the letter in half and then rip the letter into quarters before letting the pieces of the letter sail to the ground. Now, let no one accuse Cersei or any of the Lannisters of not being super dramatic when the moment calls. Mm -hmm. Barristan is shocked and goes all Barristan about this being the king's words, but Cersei ain't about that. We have a new king now. She reminds Ned that he had counseled her when they had last spoken, and Cersei, ever the saleswoman, has some counsel for Ned. Bend the knee, my lord. Bend the knee and swear fealty to my son, and we shall allow you to step down his hand and live out your days in the gray waste you call home. No, you, Ned doesn't quite say. Now, I, should, I shouldn't paraphrase. I should really give Ned some justice and do this paragraph in full because it's really, it's really the last bit of justice that Ned's going to get here. Would that I could, Ned said grimly. If she was so determined to force the issue here and now, she left him no choice. Your son has no claim to the Iron Throne he sits. Lord Stannis is Robert's true heir. Liar. I'm oh, sorry, go ahead. I said, tell him. Yeah, tell him, boy. Liar, Joffrey screams like a coward while Marcella asks what Ned means. And boy, oh boy. Wouldn't it have been nice if Ned had explained a little bit more what he means here? Right? Right? Isn't that important? We'll get to that. Anyhow, Cersei tells Ned that he condemns himself. And then she orders Barristan to take Ned prisoner as a traitor. But Barristan hesitates. Because, again, he's Barristan. And that guy has a real fucking hard time making decisions in the best of circumstances. Ned's men surround Barristan with swords in hand before he can do anything all the same. And now the treason moves from words to deeds, Cersei says. Do you think Sir Barristan stands alone, my lord? All at once, Sandra Clegane, the Red Cloaks, and the Kingsguard draw their swords as Joffrey screams orders to kill Ned and his men. Ned regards this coolly. You leave me no choice. He called out to Janice Lynn. Commander, take the queen and her children into custody. Do them no harm, but escort them back to the royal apartments and keep them under guard. Janice Lynn, who again will die like a coward in a dance with dragons, puts his helmet on and orders the gold cloaks into action. The gold cloaks lower their spears and start closing. Ned starts to tell Janice that he doesn't want bloodshed and that no one needs to die. And then everyone starts dying. A gold cloak shoves his spear into Fat Tom's back. He's dead before he even hits the ground. Ned begins shouting. Janos Slint, that frog-faced asshole, murders another of Ned's guardsmen named Varley. Ned's best man, currently in his service, Kane, whirls with his sword, swinging it about, driving back a gold cloak. And then the hound is there. Sander Clegane's first sword thrust cuts Kane's sword hand off. His second opens Kane from shoulder to breastbone. 
Ned's men are dying all around him, and I'm fucking pissed already, even before Littlefinger does his shittery. Emmett's really going to need to talk me down from this feeling about being so hot about this chapter once I'm done this summary. Because I've known this has been coming for a year, and I've read this chapter probably dozens of times now, but great or small, I must do, do my duty, so i got to kind of read to the end. So, as his men died all around him, Littlefinger slid Ned's jagger from his sheath and shoved it up under his chin. His smile was apologetic. I did warn you not to trust me, you know, Littlefinger says, holding his first knife to Ned's throat while his other, much smaller dagger pokes Ned in his hamstrings. He's a short, small man, after all. And that, my God, is a Game of Thrones Eddard 14. Just a masterful culmination of the tragedy of Ned's entire arc in King's Landing. And we will get one final Ned chapter, as we talked about before we got into the synopsis. And we'll see Ned one final time after that in Arya's final Game of Thrones chapter. But this and Ned's executions are the denouement that defines the cultural zeitgeist since it first aired in Game of Thrones in 2011 and was published in Game of Thrones back in 1996. So my hands are trembling, as Emmett can see, but you guys can't, but you might be able to see next week. But I tr- my hands tremble to ask, but what did you think about this chapter, Emmett? So 20 episodes ago, <laughs> we called Catelyn 5, the chapter in which she snatches Tyrion, the first act break of A Game of Thrones. And now we have arrived at the second. Nothing is the same ever again nope. after Eddard 14. Nope. Every storyline ramps up in its wake, and you can tell George Martin considers this a climactic moment because this chapter begins a run in which all eight POVs in this book get a chapter right in a row. Mm-hmm. All of them. Eddard 14, and then Arya 4, Sansa 4, John 7, Bran 6, Daenerys 6, Catelyn 8, and Tyrion 7. Everyone present and accounted for so they can all feel the impact of this chapter. Oh, yeah. The- this is the downfall that's been coming for Ned Stark ever since he accepted the hand position with Dread as his dead relatives looked on, and we're still feeling the ripple effects of this doom well into a dance with dragons. Welcome to the War of Five Kings, my friends, because this, this is really where it starts. Yeah, I, you know, it's it's such a amazing culmination of Ned Stark's arc, and it really is a tragedy. When we talked about when we talked with Steve Atwell, we were doing Edit Eleven. And we talked about all the hallmarks of tragedy. How Ned had all these outs to get out of King's Landing in multiple forms and guises. He could have left after Robert had ordered the murder of Viserys and Daenerys. He could have left before Robert got back from his hunt. He could have rolled out at at any point any of these points, but he didn't. He he kept staying on. And the ultimate climax and the ultimate consequence of that is him being in the throne room. And having everything come crashing down around him, it's such an amazing, like I said, denouement of Ned Stark's arc. And it really, and really Martin does a fantastic job of doing tragedy here and showing us a twist in the story because all signs, if you read this just simply from from face value, not interpreting some of the foreshadowing that Martin is integrating into Ned's arc, as well as into Arya and Sansa chapters, is all pointing to Ned Stark is going to come out as victorious, right? He's got the gold cloaks. He's got Littlefinger. He's got the letter from Robert. But of course, because Martin is excellent at his twists, the twist is, no, he's not going to come out of this okay. No, the plans are not going to work themselves out. And again, when you get beyond that surface level reading, it really comes down to all of the bad signs that we see in previous Ned chapters, but we especially see in the lead up to his march to the throne room. Absolutely. As you said, this is his red wedding. This is his no exit moment. All the moments, as you were saying, to get out of here, to make that a King's Landing alive. He's rejected them all, some for good reasons, some for bad, but now those doors are closed and all he can do is walk to his doom. Right. And yeah, even as you have these plot elements that Ned is putting in his pocket that would seem to point to his victory, you can tell just reading the chapter that there, there are all these signs that's going to go horribly wrong, as you do with tragedy. Right. It starts with Sandor's, quote, brave show outside in defiance of Ned's mercy. It continues with the news that Renly has fled the city mm-hmm. along with Loras Tyrell. Very bad sign. It ramps up with Joffrey summons to the throne room right before Ned can get the rest of the small council officially on his side regarding Robert's will. Right. And all all of this is designed to establish sickening dread in the back of your throat, the sense that, oh no, everything's going to go wrong. But yeah, Martin does a really clever job of not 
letting you know where that doom is coming from right. right away. He doesn't he doesn't give away that it's coming from Littlefinger and the Gold Cloaks. That really ends up being the twist when you get to the throne room that they've switched sides. But from the tone and just the language of the cha- of the whole chapter, you do go into that throne room with a lot of trepidation, as Ned does, of course. It's really great too is that you talk about all of the bad signs that are coming for Ned in the form of things like you know, Santa Clegane's brave show, Renly has fled, Joffrey summons before Ned can do his letter reading and get confirmed as the Lord Protector of the Realm. But George also does it with the setting, with the scenery. It's a gray overcast sky. And I think it's really, that's really cool because George is getting, has this reputation as being the trope smasher, but he plays mm-hmm. it super straight here with the weather reflecting both the scene tone as well as the plot mood and showing that it's not bright sunshine. And, and the, the show's a little bit different in that the show kind of has the bright sunshine coming into the throne room, but that's mostly because King's Landing and the show is done within hues of kind of yellowish kind of, so to speak, whereas like Winterfell True. is more gray and blue in terms of the, the color scheme they use. But but King's Landing is mostly yellow and yellow and red, which I guess is kind of cool when you think about it being those Lannister colors. But at the same time, uh, yeah, it's exact. You're exactly right. Is that this this scene moves inevitably towards Ned's downfall and it's showing us that things are going to go awry before they actually go awry. So you know that something is up in the back of your mind, even at the same time, you're like, well, Ned's got all these things going for him. He's got the gold cloaks. He's got Littlefinger. He's got Robert's will. He's going to be the Lord protector and he's got Stannis. So things can't go that wrong. Can they, can they? Yeah, they can. And then they do. Yes, absolutely. No, I, that point you make about Martin having this reputation as a trope smasher is exactly why I was trying to be very specific about what the twist actually is. Right. And what, what the twist really isn't. Because, yeah, gray overcast skies, portent, you know, being a portent of doom, that's, that's as classic storytelling as you can oh, get. Yeah. That's, that's expected. But what makes it a surprise is exactly the execution. In the same way we've talked about with Ned's arc before where, really, if you break down Ned's role in the story, he's the mentor figure. He's the father figure of the generation of heroes and protagonists. So, of course, he dies. That character mm-hmm. always dies <laughs> in genre fiction. But in this first book, he's disguised as the protagonist because he has the most chapters and because he's the one driving the plot. So it feels like a shock, but if you actually look at the overall structure of the, of the story, it makes perfect sense that Ned Stark dies early on and dies with his secret intact. Oh, yeah. But speaking of major character deaths, as you say, we, we get the official death of Robert Baratheon, mm. first of his name in this chapter. Pour one out for him. Mm-hmm. And I love Ned's little eulogy he gives when Pycelle mumbles his little, <laughs> his little thing about, you know, Robert needing rest after, after the grave. May the gods grant him rest and... Ned says, no, he hated rest. The gods give him love and laughter and the joy of righteous battle. Hell yeah. And that's such, that's such a great bittersweet moment. That sums it up right there. As much as you would instinctively desire peace for the dead, that's like what you always say about mm-hmm. people who are, have departed this mortal veil, that at least they're, they're gone from struggle and strife. At least they can find peace. But peace is what rotted Robert away from the inside <laughs> out. Peace is what destroyed Robert Baratheon. And it's what Ned says there is such a great farewell to the song, as we've been saying, that Robert loved better than the work of being a king and a grown man. He wanted love and laughter and the joy of righteous battle more than he cared about actually ruling the realm and keeping it safe from the people who would corrupt it. And that fits this chapter because the disillusionment thing we've been talking about throughout Ned's arc really comes to a head here. When, as you were saying, everything he's trusting and relying on to save the kingdom from the Lannisters fails him all at once. So that, that fits perfectly with this acknowledgement on Ned's part that, no, even in death, Robert doesn't want rest. Oh, yeah. Even in death, he'd still want to be the sellsword king of whom the singers sing. Yeah, instead of R.I.P., it's rest and war, man. That's Robert right there. Yeah. Like, don't exactly. give him an R.I.P., give him an R.I.W. You said that really well when we were talking about in, in Editor 13, how George R. R. Martin gives Robert, strangely of all the characters, a, a grace note. And then Ned kind of expounds that grace note a little bit more and saying, yes, and, and talking very strongly about who Robert was, because we see him in battle, especially in Ned's memory, being the guy who's laughing as he's swinging his war hammer about. He's the guy that scales the walls of Pike and goes through the breach there. Like, this is the guy that loves the shit out of war. And that's where that was his happy place. I mean, as weird as that sounds, like his happy place was being in battle. And that's that's awesome. But now he's he's gone. And Ned is hoping that he doesn't have peace, that he has the same sort of life that he enjoyed living in the afterlife, that his afterlife would reflect what he what what he loved most in life. And that is love, laughter, song, probably probably a drink here and there. Not too much because we don't want to reinforce his alcoholism in the post in post life. And of course, Naturally. the joy of ratual, and, the, and of course, the joy of righteous battles. So 
Yeah, it's it's a great little final note that we get about Robert Baratheon. I mean, we'll, we, we will get further notes about Robert Baratheon from different characters. And Ned, of course, has sure. his damn you, Robert, in Eddard 15 line there. But yeah, it's, it's it's a nice note to send Robert off after Ned gets news that he's dead. It reminds me somewhat of how, quote unquote, Renly's ghost gets called into battle at the Blackwater. Right. It's, of course, Garland Terrell, Garland Terrell wearing Renly's armor. But it, in the same sense of like Renly still fighting battles after he's dead, he's being his image is being pressed into service even mm-hmm. after his body has been laid in the ground. You, you kind of get that same sense with what Ned's saying about Robert here. So shifting from absent friends to false friends, mm-hmm. the the other counselors arrive with fussy words and polite deferrals, overplayed grief, and in some <laughs> cases outright lies. As per usual, this is the small council, as we've been saying throughout Ned's chapters. And to give Ned credit, as we've been trying to do, he realizes explicitly in this chapter that he shouldn't trust Varus, Pycelle, or even Barristan, whom he likes. And uh, if only that doubt extended to Littlefinger. Yeah. Littlefinger has done his best to be a total jerk and asshole to Ned and play at being his friend. And I, I think that, that Ned doesn't extend the same distrust to Littlefinger because Littlefinger is in on his plans. Littlefinger, as we talked about in Edward 13, has summoned the gold cloaks and has won them to Ned's side, quote unquote. But I also think it's interesting about Varys because Varys is one of those characters that I'm very curious about in A Game of Thrones because of the seeming retcon of the Blackfires about how much of his sorrow was genuine. I mean, he, it's overplayed, obviously, because far as, as a mummer, he, he's very much a, uh, I have to, kind of a, a side note, but I do wonder about his mummery skills as an actor. Was he kind of like the Nicolas Cage of like the mummery shows and, and Essos kind of being overacting every single scene? Because he is really overacting here. But you do kind of he's wonder. He's a ham. Yeah, That's he's totally hamming point. up. Yeah. But you do kind of wonder whether his sorrow is genuine, at least in so much as it's genuine in the form of that it does, that Robert dying ruins his plans that he had made with Illyrio. I mean, it's right. speaking of Illyrio, we kind of get a same sort of motif when Daenerys talks about uh, Illyrio in A Storm of Swords, where her and Jorah Momara are talking about Viserys' death aboard their ship, and Daenerys says, Master Illyrio has protected me in the past. Strong Belwas says that he wept when he heard my brother was dead. Yes, said Mormont, but did he weep for Viserys? or for the plans he had made with him. So I kind of wonder whether Vara's being very, very sad and sorrowful here is a similar thing that's going on with Illyrio later in the Storm of Swords, where Robert dying, much as Viserys dying, ruins the plans that Illyrio and Viserys had for both men. Now, of course, at that point, by Edward 13 and Edward 14, Varys knows that Robert's going to die. Varys also likely knows that Ned has found out about uh, the the incest and the bastardy of Cersei's children. So his plans are already in ruins, but this is kind of the culmination of all of the ruined plans that Varys and Illyrio had made in the years leading up to Robert's death and to Ned's attempted coup in King's Landing. For sure, there's this great passage that perfectly sums up the small council. When Ned asks them to confirm him as Lord Protector as Robert wished, he is, quote, watching their faces, wondering what thoughts hid behind Pycelle's hmm. half-closed eyes, Littlefinger's half-lazy smile, and the nervous flutter of Varus's fingers. All those references to half, because that's how these guys work. They're always half in. They're always right. performing. They're always waiting to see where things are going to land, and then they make their move. They can't be relied upon in the way that Ned wants. And yeah, I think you're completely right that Varus's tears are genuine in that his plans are screwed, but they're not genuine in that he mourns Robert Baratheon, the man, no. in the same way Ned mourns Robert Baratheon, the man. Right. So we get Ned thinking about his plans as he has this brief meeting with the council. And once again, it is established that Ned, far from relying on just the angels of his better nature to save him, (laughs) actually does have a plan. He wants to hold the castle under the authority of Regent, not admit right away that the truth of the twincest. Just just carry on pretending, oh, I'm officially the Regent of Joffrey, the next king. Mm -hmm. And keep up that performance until Stannis can arrive to take the throne outright. And like as you say, he doesn't enjoy the deceit, but he is prepared to do it. It's a plan that involves lying and having some hard-nosed politics, indicating that Ned isn't isn't naive exactly. He's, he's insistent on preserving this mercy, even as he's preparing for war. As we've yeah. been saying, he makes the huge mistake in trusting Littlefinger and in not having the gold cloaks on his side from the start, but his image as being just kind of like a bumpkin who bumbles his way through these last few chapters really doesn't hold true once you actually look at his thoughts here. No, again, George has the has the scale thumbed so hard to ensure the Ned's downfall occurs exactly when it does, as we talked about in previous Ned chapters. 
And I do kind of I, I do love the the little line that Ned makes the kind of thought he has about the until the king comes of age. And then Ned thinks, ah, but the king is of age. And of course, he's, yeah, that's great. He's thinking about Stannis here. And we will talk about this a bit more towards the end of this this podcast. But I do wonder what Ned was thinking. And I would have loved to get more of Ned's thoughts about what he was planning for the children necessarily with Stannis coming here. Would he have done some sort of Davos move of kind of getting the kids on a, on a boat and sending them away to Essos with like one of his men or something like that before Stannis arrived. It's a possibility, I guess. It's something that, that we will talk about more towards the end, but it is really interesting that he is, he does have a plan here. He is, his deceit that he's working out here and he's talking, he's thinking about here is very smart politically. It just doesn't work out because he made the mistake of trusting Littlefinger. And I think also another note about the deceit is that as much as Ned is an honest and honorable man, this is not the first time that he's, quote, deceived people. You know, we have Ned deceiving Robert by set, by saying that he was the one that ordered Catelyn to take Tyrion prisoner back in a Game of Thrones at her 10. And True. way, way before that, the major, biggest, most important deceit that Ned ever made was to claim Jon Snow as his own. So, of course, deceit and lies that the, – the, and, of course, the deceit and lies that Ned tells – and has to conceal from those and, – and the ways that he has to conceal the truth from those around him are always, always, always intended to preserve the innocence or in the, or in the case of Edder 10, his own wife. Excellent point. And yeah, you, you bring up a great hypothetical about how Ned would have tried to handle the children and the question of mercy had Stannis showed up with all his power. And whether he would have tried to pull a Davos as, as Davos does with Edric Storm and the Storm of Swords, smuggling Edric Storm away before confronting Stannis about it. But speaking of confronting kings, mm -hmm. we arrive at the heart of the chapter, oh Ned boy. running the gauntlet, that slow, suspenseful walk to the throne room. I love it's just so well executed, really well done in the show, too. Martin is, is lingering on the buildup to establish the tension and gravitas of this moment, again, emphasizing that really everything has been building to this. And as we've been saying, it, it all comes back to Ned reliving his youth, reliving the days of Robert's Rebellion and feeling the horrible connections between then and now. Joffrey on the throne and Robert's wake is blurring in his mind into Jaime on the throne and Eris' wake. Mm. It's, it's the same confrontation, the same meeting. In that first showdown, the rebellion was, in Ned's eyes, being tainted forever by the Lannisters. As he said, Jaime's sword tainted the throne Robert sits on. And now it's been outright hijacked by them. So in, in his mind, this is all just one big narrative about how the <laughs> Lannisters broke Robert's rebellion. So Ned is confronting not only Joffrey, but all of his demons. They're all waiting for him there. The Kingsguard are here just as they were at the Tower of Joy, mm. surrounding the place as they were at the Tower. So again, it's that flashback mentality. Oh, yeah. And um, one, one little detail I noticed on this reread was that Joffrey's cape is patterned with 50 lines <laughs> and 50 stags. And 50 plus 50 equals 100, and that's the number of gold cloaks in the room. So I wonder if that's a tiny detail Martin threw in there just for rereaders to emphasize that the gold cloaks are actually backing Joffrey here. Oh, plus you also have the idea of the uh, the stags on, on his cloak also representing the bribe that Littlefinger paid in order to ensure that the gold cloaks Great are point. on Joffrey's side. So I think that's another little teeny tiny wink that Martin makes for those of us who are rereading like you guys who are all listening to this podcast. One of the things I think is interesting about Ned and his idea that this is all one single narrative is that he's not quite correct in his narrative and that he thinks that Jamie's golden sword sullied the Iron Throne and sullied Robert's Rebellion, when in fact Jamie's golden sword saved half half a million lives potentially from Eris's wildfire, which is something that, of course, is not going to be revealed until a storm of swords, and something that Jamie conspicuously and consciously keeps hidden from Ned Stark because he feels that Ned is judging him. So he's not going to fucking explain himself to to Ned Stark while he's there judging him. This is a very different though narrative that we have here. Jamie dismounts the throne. He doesn't want to sit the Iron Throne, unlike the Pitch Letter, of course, which has Jamie killing his way to get to the top. Um, Jamie has no interest in the Iron Throne in, in this version of the story that Martin is telling. Joffrey, on the other hand, has every intention and interest in sitting the Iron Throne and staying on that fucking throne. And man, is it going to be awful and awesome at the same time when that kind of all comes crashing down with Ned here at the end of this chapter. That's a great point you make. I don't mean to suggest that, yeah, Ned's narrative is gospel here, but that's the that's the narrative oh, yeah. that's coherent in his head, and that's the narrative that fits into his arc. Of but course. yeah, it's very, very powerful in A Storm of Swords when Martin undercuts this and reveals what was really going on with Jamie and what Ned didn't know. That's some great stuff. I can't wait to cover that. Oh yeah, sure. that's going to be awesome. So, Joffrey, when he's speaking to his counselors, goes right for the coronation and loyalty oaths as, as needing to happen immediately. Clearly, he's been coached by Cersei to forego any regency on Ned's part. Ned's response is to 
hand a letter to Cersei and to try to leverage Barristan's honor and reputation to try to you know, bring bring the White Knight in on this and, and, and have him uh, help out. And all the White Knight does is look shocked and then hesitate because, of course, this, hmm. that's that's the Barristan way. That's him being Barristan, as you said throughout. Yeah, you know, uh, I, I'm going to go back to one point you made on, and I'll talk about Barristan and that I'm curious whether it was, and not not to disagree with you because all of your points are excellent as always, but I am curious whether it was Cersei who had told Joffrey to kind of make the pronouncement from the Iron Throne. I'm curious whether it maybe it was Littlefinger who was like, Joffrey, when you get on the Iron Throne, you need to immediately make the declaration that you need to secure the loyalty of all the counselors sort of things. And not and again, not to undercut your point, the, the most likely reading that is the straight one that you're pointing out, which is that Cersei was the one who said, Joffrey, when you get up to the Iron Throne and your counselors come in, you're immediately going to say you demand their loyalty and their oaths of loyalty. But it does kind of read like a smart political play. And Cersei is not necessarily the brightest politician. It, it varies. I think I think you make a great point because Joffrey clearly does listen to Littlefinger. Littlefinger is almost certainly right. the one who got Ned executed by whispering in Joffrey's ear. But while Cersei has her limits as a conspirator, one thing she's actually pretty good about is understanding she needs a monopoly on power true, and a monopoly true. on the, the Iron Throne itself. Yeah. That's why she. That's why she has Joffrey back. That's why she has Joffrey on the throne instead of bringing him to the council room to to, to do this whole thing. So that's a good point. It's definitely a possibility, but I think it's within Cersei's uh, wheelhouse, not not her literal wheelhouse, <laughs> her metaphorical wheelhouse, to be able to get Joffrey to do this kind of thing. No, it, it's great. Simple politics again, which is something that Cersei is good at. And maybe to back up your point a little bit, is that Cersei does the simple politics really well for herself in, in terms of like what she's wearing, right? She's wearing oh, yeah, beautiful- the, Her knockout clothes. Her knockout yeah. clothes with the tiara on top of her head. She's clearly showing the realm, which is very much reliant upon visual effects to understand power, which again, we don't have constitutions and writings necessarily allow the people to understand that. A lot of the nobles for that fact are, are, are not literate. In order to highlight the fact that she is the one who's in power, she is the one who has the actual literal possession of the Iron Throne. And this is something that's going to influence the character Barristan, which again, he's kind of secondary at this time until he becomes a point of view character in A Dance with Dragons, where George marvelously, he really expounds on Barristan's character here or rather in A Dance of Dragons, in contrasting his chivalry with the stood, saw, and did nothing motif where he's thinking about errors. And in this case, what he really sh- what happens when the queen proclaims one king in the hand another, Barristan is basically, he freezes there because he has no idea what to do in, in that moment where Cersei is saying, the king sta- sits above you on the Iron Throne and Ned says, no, no, the king is on Dragonstone. It's Lord Stannis who is actual Robert's, Robert's heir. And he freezes. He has no idea what to do here because... Like I said in my my synopsis and summary, he's it's, it's, he makes he has a hard time making decisions on the best of days, and this is the worst of days, and he has to make a decision yep. between two competing claims that have validity to him. Because, like I said, also Barristan almost certainly does not know anything about the incest between mm-hmm. Cersei and Jaime and the bastardy of Cersei's children. So, what's he going to do in this case? And what he does is that he freezes. He can't do anything. And Ned's men all surround Barristan and the White Knight, the greatest knight in all of Westeros, after Sir Arthur Dane is frozen. He can't do anything. And that's going to have impacts in, on his coming uh, dismissal from the Kingsguard by Joffrey and has impacts on his arc going forward through Storm of Swords and A Dance of Dragons. Well said, sir. You always do the best analysis of Barristan. Ah. So that, that's, that's terrific stuff. You can see Martin very much building on this moment as well as Barristan's time with Eris when you get to his arc oh, yeah. with dragons. Agreed for sure. Thanks. So we arrive at the climax, the swords come out, and of course it's so fitting and so sad that Ned's last words before the spears drive home is commanding that there be no bloodshed. Mm. Even in this last second he's trying to save lives and then the blood that shed is that of his own men. There's that brutal description of the red spear point coming out through Fat Tom's chest and him being dead before his sword even hit the ground. <laughs> of Cain almost getting away just like Jory Cassell almost got away when Jamie's men were attacking them in the streets. Clearly, Martin has those two scenes in mind as parallels. In both cases, Ned's men are dying around him while he is spared. And there's that horrible sensation of, again, Ned Stark is the man who who dines with his soldiers and dines with his servants and and connects to them as individuals. This horrible, wretched situation where he is spared because he's important, because he's Hmm. Ned Stark, because he can be a useful hostage, but they can't, so he has to watch them die. It's just so awful, and... At this moment, the audience feels, obviously, this intense loathing of Peter Baelish, mm-hmm. um, which is just so visceral, it's difficult to even talk about. Just his mm. smarminess and his attitude when he drives that dagger home like he's been planning. It's just is so hateable. But we also just this feel this, this huge deflation, this void, as we realize, oh, 
Ned's not going to win. Yeah. It all fell apart, and we're left with just no moorings here. And that, I think, is is what makes us cling so desperately to Rob when oh, we yeah. see him next. Martin sets that up so well, where the next time we see Rob, the drums of war are literally pounding, and the men are all coming together, and great John Umber is growling, <laughs> and Rob's got this army. And so we're, you know, save us, young wolf. You're our only hope. I think that, that, that makes us get all the more attached to Rob, because we want him to restore not only justice in Westeros, but our own sense of narrative equilibrium, right? We, 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 yeah. we want him to make the story make sense to us again. Yeah. And of course, when we get to a storm of swords, he will not. George has said in the past that he knew from the get-go that Ned Stark was doomed. And as soon as he figured out that Ned Stark was doomed, he knew that Rob Stark was likewise doomed. So when I first saw the show and, and read the books for the first time, Rob Stark became my man after Ned Stark ended up going his way. And oh, sure. the reason why, I mean, he's he's basically Maximus, right? Sort of a little exactly. role reversal in that he's the son of a, of a murdered father, brother of a murdered brother, you know, the, these kinds of types of different things as, as Maximus explains in the fantastic 2000 movie Gladiator. But of course, like Maximus, Rob Stark is, is doomed. He's going to die as well. Um, the, the, again, it's Rob Stark's story so much resembles Ned's in this thematic impulse of telling a story of tragedy. The narrative of, of Ned Stark's story is tragedy starting with the crypts of Winterfell and the statues staring down in judgment on him. That's the way the Ned Stark story starts in A Game of Thrones. It ends a few chapters beyond this with Arya witnessing his execution here, but it really ends in this chapter where his coup to replace Cersei Lannister and replace Joffrey is undercut by the betrayal of Littlefinger. Rob Stark's story starts with him triumphantly calling the banners and marching south and winning the phrase and winning battles against Jaime and Tywin in the Riverlands. But ultimately, again, sort of like Ned Stark, he's betrayed from the inside by Walter Frey and Roose Bolton. So that tragic impulse that is dominating the the lives of Ned Stark and Rob Stark is just running so solidly in the narrative. Very true. And yeah, the themes and tones of tragedy are definitely at work here, especially when you get to Catelyn's A Storm of Swords chapters, which just feels soaked in Greek and Shakespearean tragedy mm-hmm. and all, all the ways those are written and the, the, the sense of the trap closing and the decisions curling around you. And again, the, the use of weather as, a, oh, as yeah. a signifier of doom comes back very strongly in Catelyn's Storm chapters, where it feels like it's always raining. And then doom is always coming for them. But of course, Rob Stark will be crowned at the end of this book, in large part in response to <laughs> Stark's death. But as we shift into our foreshadowing and groundwork section, there is some groundwork done in this chapter for another person who will crown themselves as part of the uh, War of Five Kings. Boy. Yeah. So I know this that Vars mix before we get to that climactic conclusion of this chapter is that Renly and Sir Loras are fleeing south with 50 men, which is, by the way, 50 men shorter, 50 men fewer rather than what he had promised to Ned Stark in Eddard 13 because he's a goddamn liar. So they're fleeing south, not to Storm's End. Actually, they're going to – well, actually, it's actually interesting. He could – he likely went to Storm's End first to get some of the banners from Storm's End, from the Stormlands, and then he headed west immediately to Highgarden to get himself crowned at the end of A Game of Thrones because he's a little fucking terrorist and I hate those goddamn motherfucking guts. Absolutely. Yeah, Renly fleeing in this chapter is just, again, a sign that things are going to go wrong for Ned because Renly's not there. And uh, Renly crowning himself really kind of comes out of nowhere, which is actually an element that I think, as I've said previously, is handled better in the show and I think is kind of rushed at the end of this book, but we'll get into that more when we get to Tyrion 9 when we learn that Renly has been crowned and Catelyn 11 when we see Rob and the Northern Lords react to it. Right. A parallel that struck out to me stuck out to me while reading this chapter is that what we have here is a, a martyr for Stannis going hmm. down in the throne room as Joff screams down at him, and that's very similar to what happens in A Clash of Kings Sansa 8 yes. after the Blackwater, when you have the, the loyalist to Stannis yelling that, you know, the, uh, the abomination sits the throne and the cleansing fire will come, and <laughs> Joffrey has them killed but scratches his arm in the throne and screams. It's a very similar scene, so... I wonder if Martin was going for a similar tone there at the end of the climax of A Clash of Kings as he was for the climax of A Game of Thrones, a sense of, of the the Lannisters winning and the bitter unfairness as it is the people who are fighting for the better cause go down. Oh, yeah. You know, it's it's kind of one of, the, one of Stannis' men says after Joffrey cuts himself, even the throne rejects him sort of thing before he's... He is no king. Right. Yeah, absolutely. It's so good. good stuff. It's very similar to uh, what we see in Rhaenyra from The Dance of the Dragons. Probably, probably a parallel Great we should point. have pointed out when we were doing our, our patron episode is the... Uh, Matthew. 
well, whatever. Rhaenyra allegedly cuts herself on on the Iron Throne, and and uh, Gildane makes the noble. That was meaning to that was foreshadowing for the fact that the throne had rejected her, sort of thing. And he's writing in the form of Septon Eustace, who is a Green supporter in the Dance of the Dragons. So finally, in terms of our foreshadowing groundwork, we have the so-called concept of paper shields. So this is something that we see a fair amount in A Song of Ice and Fire. And the idea is that a paper shield is a letter or some sort of document which is intended to shield the person bearing it and the contents of the letter, rather, to shield the person bearing the letter from consequences. And we see this especially in John and Samuel's The Dance of Dragons and Feast for Crows chapters, where Maester Aemon drafts a letter to Tommen stating, quote, the Night's Watch takes no part in the wars of the Seven Kingdoms. Our oaths are, our oaths are sworn to the realm, and the realm now stands in dire peril. Stannis Baratheon aids us against our foes from beyond the wall, though we are not his men. And then Sam, of course, is there listening to John read the letter, and he, said, and he squirms in his seat. Well, we're not, are we? So... John reading that letter in the letter that Eamon drafts is something intended to protect John, even though it super fucking pisses John off. And he signs it anyways after Samuel points out that a paper shield is better than no shield at all. Great point, Sam. And it's something that our friend of the show, uh, Adam Feldman, wrote in a great piece about John Stannis back in, I think, 2013 on his Mirny's Blot website, which you all should check out and read more about how John's paper shield is used in the narrative and really how effective it is as well. Because, you know, in Feast, Cersei immediately as, as soon as she learns that Jon Snow is become Lord Commander of the Night's Watch, she orchestrates plans, a conspiracy to try to murder him. But the paper shield is intended to work in, not just in Jon's narrative, but in other narratives in order to protect the people who are bearing it from potential violence and consequences and harm that could come upon them if they didn't have the paper shield at all. Yeah, by paper shield, of course, we mean declared forms of legitimacy. Right. You know, the, something that bears the signature of a king or someone in power and using that to declare your own power. And I think there's been a lot of takeaways from this chapter that such things are completely useless because Cersei just rips through Ned's and, and takes him down anyway. Right. But if you look elsewhere in the series, it doesn't always work that way. Tyrion comes to King's Landing with his own paper shield mm -hmm. in the Clash of Kings from Tywin, declaring him the hand. And Cersei says, well, I could just rip this up and throw you in jail. <laughs> but Tyrion points out, you're not going to do that because that would infuriate our father, whom you ultimately derive your authority and basic sense of well-being right. from. So you're not going to do it. And Davos in the Storm of Swords has his own paper shield, the letter from the Night's Watch talking about being under attack from beyond the wall and asking for help. And he uses that to try to save his life from Stannis after sending away Edric Storm, and it works. Mm -hmm. And it works because both Tyrion and Davos know their audience and know what kind of power they have in their back pocket. Tyrion knows that Cersei isn't actually going to make a move against Tywin's authority and that Cersei ultimately needs his help right. in terms of getting control over Joffrey and the city. Davos knows that Stannis... Furious as he is about Edric Storm, really doesn't want to kill Davos and really doesn't want mm -hmm. to follow Melisandre's path, but feels he has to. So by giving him an out, by giving him another option, he can convince Stannis to get back on his side. They, they succeed for reasons other than the overwhelming use of force. <laughs> so the takeaway from Ned's downfall should not be support for crude Machiavellianism, but rather an understanding that power can take many different forms depending on the context, and each context will require a different way of mastering that, mastering that power. As Stephen Atwell said in our episode we had him on for Edward Eleven. Unless you're just an outright so far gone sadist, you want to think of yourself as the good guy. Right. So you're going to come up with a form of legitimacy that allows yourself to think that. So most people, even in the brutal feudal medieval context, don't actually operate on pure power as power. Right. I, I think that's absolutely true. And that does kind of take us into our broader discussion about this chapter in that many people, myself included in the past, have asked why Ned didn't openly declare in court that Cersei's children were bastards born of incest. And it's it's a good question, right? Because I think like a lot of people are like, Ned, you have the you have the opportunity here. Cersei has rejected every single overture that you've made to resolve the issue peacefully. He's offered you an out, but you're not taking it. She, the fact that she has not taken your offer means that you really have every opportunity and means to declare that Cersei's children are bastards born of incest. But the fact of the matter is that Ned here, even in his last moments of power, is still in my mind, and he doesn't expound on this, so we have to kind of imply it from the text, but Ned is still trying to preserve the lives of the innocents. Now, Joffrey is not an innocent necessarily, but Marcel and Tommen certainly are. And my feeling, and we, I did kind of allude to this earlier, is that Ned is still attempting to 
find some way to save the lives of these kids. Because if he says these kids are born of incest, that Cersei and Jamie have been banging, that they that Robert Robert's true heir is Stannis. He does say that Robert's true heir is Stannis, but he doesn't explain is he doesn't explain why that that Stannis is Robert's true heir. But even despite all of that, he's still looking for an out. He's still looking to act in a merciful manner in order to save the lives of kids. And you do wonder what his plan might have been for the kids if he had been successful. And that's one of those major what ifs that I actually don't see a lot of people talk about. But I do wonder whether we would see sort of a similar motif that we saw with Davos and Edric Storm in A Storm of Swords. This gets at the hypothetical we were talking about earlier, which uh, how how Ned would handle the Joffrey, Tommen, and Marcella once Stannis came into his power and how he would keep them safe. And part of what he might have been trying to do is try not to reveal the twincest and so not excite anyone's anger against Joffrey, Tommen, and Marcella until he can get them away. Yeah. Because for all, Stannis is often discussed as a poor politician or someone who doesn't have a strong base of support. A lot of people do believe him when he finally sends that public letter out declaring himself the right. rightful heir because Joffrey, Tommen, and Marcella are born of incest. A lot of the small folk believe him. A lot of lords who are not with Stannis at first but are also not in Renly's army, show up to support Stannis sometime around the time of Storm's End, like Justin Massey, uh, Gilbert Chittering, a couple others who are from the Crown Lands. Yep. And there's really no reason for them to be there right. other than they believed Stannis' letter. Yep. That's clearly the timing that brought them into the coalition. And when uh, Jocelyn Bywater tells Tyrion that there's a fair amount of Stannis support in the streets and you get people like the Antlerman who assuming Stannis is going to win, mm-hmm. in part, I'm sure it's because... Stannis has some strong leadership qualities, but I think it's also in part because they believe him. I mean, that's why you call, call yourself the Antlerman, right. the stag sigil of House Baratheon. That's in contrast to Joffrey if you don't think he's a Baratheon. So all, all of this is to say is that declaration would have a huge impact and could even have a huge impact in the room if Ned yelled it out and Barristan heard it and all those gold cloaks heard it and the Kingsguard heard it and maybe right. the word would start to spread. That could have had a real political impact, but Ned does not want that to happen because, as you say, he wants to keep that mercy on the table and that really starts to become hard if he's publicly declaring that Joffrey, Tom, and Marcella are treasonous abominations. So, yeah, I think you're right. This is another case of Ned trying to walk that line of trying to bring the Lannisters down, but not so far down that he has dead kids on his hands. Yeah, and one of the things, too, that we find out in A Dance of Dragons from John's first chapter is that he's in? Is that Jon Snow is in conversation with Stannis Baratheon, and they're talking about Jon Slint, for that matter. And Jon says this to Stannis. He says, "My father's always said you were a just man." And then Jon is thinking to himself, "Just but harsh," had been Lord Eddard's exact words when talking about Stannis. But Jon did not think it would be wise to share that with Stannis. Probably, probably <laughs> smart on Jon's part. So. Mm-hmm. Ned has this background about Stannis. He knows who Stannis Baratheon is. He is a just man, but Ned believes him to be a harsh man too. And as we see over and over in Stannis Baratheon, much as we love the character, we do have to regard him as a fully fleshed out character with numerous flaws. And he has numerous flaws. Please do not add us about this anymore. God damn it. There's been so many motherfuckers who have been saying Stannis has been justified in his misogyny. He is justified in burning Edric Storm and bittering Shireen and stuff like that. And okay, we'll talk about the moral arguments at another point, but no, 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 no. Just but harsh in the context means that Ned likely thought that Stannis would execute these kids. And we do see that motif there where Stannis is amenable at the very least, to burning Edric Storm, a bastard not born of incest. How much more amenable would he be to executing Joffrey, Tommen, and Marcella, these children who are born of incest? Think about the way he regards Gilly's child. Yep. Children born of incest? We will not have such abominations here at, at Castle Black. This is not King's Landing. Abominations is a really harsh word to give to children who had no choice in being bastards born of incest. And it does speak to Stannis's not great regard for kids that he doesn't think are – kind of getting a little bit philosophical here, but he doesn't regard as coming from some sort of just placed and just foundation or rather just origination. And I think that Ned has all of that in mind, that kind of just but harsh mentality he thinks about Stannis. So him not declaring – the kids to be bastards born of incest is an attempt to preserve their lives and hopefully, maybe, in an alternate universe to get them out of King's Landing before Stannis arrived to claim to come into his power. I think the key line for Stannis here is when he says, 
after Joffrey's death that Tommen is gentler than Joffrey, but still another monster in the making, right. another leech upon the land, born of the same incest. So for Stannis, this is categorical. It doesn't really matter if Tommen is nicer than Joffrey. He's just, by definition, can't be allowed to hold the throne. And yeah, I think we're going to get much more into that in Eddard 15, when Varys has that great line about Stannis uh, being utterly without mercy, and right. that there's no creature more terrifying than a truly just man. That definitely intersects with Ned's arc in a lot of interesting ways. But for this chapter, I think that about uh, wraps it up mm-hmm. for A Game of Thrones, Eddard 14. So thank you for listening, everybody. Yeah, thank you so much for listening. This chapter was super heavy, but we hope... I think it's a good is a good chapter. Actually, it's an excellent chapter, and hopefully a good podcast too. As always, please rate and review us on iTunes, Google Play, Podbean, SoundCloud, Acast, anywhere and everywhere you can find your podcasts. You can find us on Patreon at patreon.com forward slash asof, where you can get early access to episodes, bonus episodes, and you can also do Q&A and get show notes and all the good things like that. You can find us on Twitter at asof, and our email is asof at gmail.com. Personally speaking, you could find me at Brendan Beefish on Twitter, Brendan Beefish on Reddit, and my website is Wars and Politics of Ice and Fire.wordpress.com. You can find me at Poor Quentin on Twitter or at poorquentin.tumblr.com. And so join us next time for, as we said, our very first live stream chapter by chapter episode as Sirio Pharrell takes his courageous last stand in Arya 4. So we're very excited to do that for you. And like I said, we'll be reminding you and dropping the link to the, to the YouTube page as we get closer to Monday, February the 4th at 8.30 p.m. So we hope to see all of you there. See you guys then.